You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome you to this hour of radio broadcasting here on republicbroadcasting.org. And I would like to welcome all of the usual listeners to tonight's broadcast, as well as any new listeners that may be joining us for the first time. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm coming to you today, as every day, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. And I want to, of course, welcome you all to the broadcast, and, well, I'm going to encourage you to get strapped in for tonight's broadcast, as we have a lot of news to go over from around the globe. I put together some stories tonight that I think are going to be shaping, really, the world that we're going to be living in in the coming weeks, months, and years ahead, as I think there are a lot of things that are coming to a head in very different parts of the globe geographically that may or may not be of one contiguous uh, piece, but uh, we'll start to break down some of that tonight, including the fact that, as I mentioned last week on the program, there's going to be a general election here in Japan this weekend, which could considerably change the course of Japanese politics. Uh, We have the Chinese uh, leadership change and its fallout starting to be assessed from various quarters, so we'll take a look at some of that. We're going to be talking about the secession movements that are building uh, steam not only in Europe and, of course, not only in America, but in other places around the globe as well. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Egypt with the protests there and what's, uh, what's shaping up to be a very interesting fight over the Constitution that's been proposed and, well, some people are suggesting a fight for the soul of Egypt itself. And uh, we're also going to be taking a look at the latest nuclear news regarding Iran and some breakthroughs in the Iran-UN nuclear talks, and also some very interesting details about some leaked documents that happen to form part of the IAEA dossier on the Iranian nuclear program that are almost certainly frauds, forgeries, or just rank amateurs just playing a hoax on people. And uh, yet this is what the type of information that the IAEA is going to uh, try to use to make the case that Iran is building their nuclear weapons. So more drama on that, and we'll get into the question of who leaked those documents anyway. But uh, first up tonight, I wanted to start with something a little bit different and some just a great big thank you. And I get a lot of support from people uh, in all sorts of different ways. Of course, people contacting me through the contact form on CorbettReport.com and, of course, people's monetary support, people spreading the word about the website. All of it greatly appreciated. You don't know how much I do appreciate all of the work that you guys do out there. And, of course, this broadcast and all of the work I do is nothing without you guys. So once again, thank you all out there for making this uh, this media possible. But tonight I want to put a special thank you out there to one listener in particular, Barbara from Chicago, who got in touch with me randomly about a week ago to suggest that since she's in Chicago and she knows that I happen to be a fan of the Smashing Pumpkins, that she wanted to send me some press clippings of, of Smashing Pumpkins in the Chicago newspapers. And lo and behold, just the other day, it what arrives in my mailbox, but literally dozens of clippings from various Chicago area newspapers of my favorite band, the Smashing Pumpkins, and some information about their latest album and their latest tour, etc. And I must admit, this is the first time I've ever received information quite like this before in in the post from any of the listeners out there. There's even a uh, 
a bit of information about Madame Zuzu's, which is uh, Billy Corgan's uh, new tea house that he's just opened. So very unexpected, very unusual, but uh, absolutely the perfect gift for me. And I really am a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan, so I really do appreciate this. And uh, for everyone else out there, I haven't bought the new reissue of The Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. So if anyone wants to send that, they can send that to Japan, care of. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I don't expect anything like that, um, but I do truly appreciate all the incredible things that you guys out there do. So I just want to share that with you. And of course, once again, express my deep gratitude to all of you out there who really do make this broadcast possible. And you are the uh, the blood in the engine. Maybe that's the wrong analogy. You're the oil in the engine that keeps the, all of this going. At any rate, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to start taking a look at some of this hefty meat and potatoes of the news making the news around the world. Sit back, sit right back, and we'll be back in just a moment. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the broadcast. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. And let me just take this opportunity to let everyone in Radioland know, if, if you don't know already, that, of course, this video that I record of each night's radio transmission is available on CorbettReport.com a few hours after each episode airs. It also goes up on YouTube.com slash CorbettReport and Blip.tv slash CorbettReport, so you can check there. Again, a few hours after each episode airs for the video of each transmission. And if you happen to be watching the video, of course, you can listen to the MP3 audio, um, either in my archives, in the republicbroadcasting.org archives, or finally, you can actually listen live online every night at 10 p.m. Eastern, that's 9 p.m. Central, uh, on republicbroadcasting.org. So many different ways to listen and or watch this material but you're not here to listen to that. You're here to listen to what's happening around the world. So let's get into the real action of what's going on around the world right now. And I wanted to start off from here at home in Japan. And even for those of you who are not home in Japan, who are making your home elsewhere around the world, I think it is important to take a look at what's happening in the, the Japanese elections this weekend, because unlike most Japanese elections, which happen quite frequently and which don't tend to mean very much, I think this election in particular does show a bit of a shift in the Japanese electorate and a potential very large shift in policies that might be coming down the line, depending on who gets into office. So the long and short of it is that there's going to be an election coming up this weekend, and it is almost certain at this point, of course nothing is certain, but it's uh, it's almost a foregone conclusion that the Liberal Democrat Party, the LDP, is going to get into power and displace the Democratic Party of Japan, the DPJ, which has been ruling since 2009. And for those of you who don't know about Japanese politics, Japanese politics has been more or less a one-party affair since the uh, the dawn of the modern democratic age in the post-war uh, U.S.-occupied Japan. And basically, since the post in the post-war period, the LDP, the Liberal Democrats, have ruled for all but a handful of years, including the last few years. So it has basically been a monopoly of power here, and it looks like the old monopolists are going to return to their position of power this weekend. And uh, that's pretty much the way that this election seems to be playing out, especially because the DPJ has fallen apart in the last couple of years. 
under the stewardship of a couple of different prime ministers. Surprise, surprise. Once again, the prime minister's chair here in Japan changes more often than a chair in a game of musical chairs. So it is, uh, again, something of a laughing stock of the Western uh, democratic elected governments that Japan, of course, is changing leadership so often, and here's just another change in leadership. So what could possibly really be changing here? Well, actually, I think this election is going to be decisive in a number of ways, and I did point to that article last week on the program when we just briefly mentioned this election, talking about the electorate that's deeply dissatisfied with the DPJ and the way they failed to live up to expectations. What else is new? And uh, in fact, I, I saw some parallels. I don't want to analogize too closely because analogies always fall apart. But I saw some parallels between the hype over the hope and changester, the Obama Meister, back in 2008 and the, his election, and then the election of the DPJ in 2009 here in Japan. It was somewhat of a similar feeling in that, oh, here's a new party. It's going to be a new era for Japan. Things are really going to change. We're going to have some radically different ideas, etc. And it's turned out to be, well, there have been some kinds of token changes, but it uh, certainly has not lived up to people's expectations. So there is actually an interesting article, and uh, I'll give credit where credit is due. There's a BBC News article that was posted up uh, just earlier today that actually breaks down what's happening in this election in, term, in, in fairly good terms. I mean, I think they actually do a good job of identifying three of the key policies that are likely to change and uh, and how they're going to affect this election. So I will point you to this article. It's called Economic Policies Irk Japanese Businesses Ahead of Election. It's by the correspondent Marika Oi in Tokyo. And again, it's up on BBC News. And of course, the link to this will be in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. So you can go there for the link and you can go and read through this article for yourself. But basically, they identify three different things that are going to be key or deciding factors in this upcoming election. Uh, three, Three important policies, but oddly enough, there's a vast disconnect between the two main parties, the LDP and the DPJ, and what the general public actually wants on these issues. And I think this is... This goes to something of the heart of the matter of where Japanese politics is heading. And it's summed up here as the uh, the three unpopular moves that are actually popular with the electorate, if not amongst the political class. And that's uh, the idea of tax cuts for Japan, the idea of being against the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the idea of going to a zero nuclear policy, all of which are have a lot of support among the general public, but which are not on the table as policy options for either of the major candidates for the uh, for Jap- the Japanese prime ministership, the the leadership of the the Japanese Diet. So um, let's just break down these these three issues. The first one is a tax cut uh, or tax hike proposal, which is on the table right now. The uh, prevailing DPJ has announced uh, and the Prime Minister Noda has has backed the plan to uh, increase consumption tax here, which is currently at 5%. They're going to bump it up to 8% by 2014 and then up to uh, 10% by August of 2015. Now, this is obviously uh, deeply unpopular with the general public here. Of course, tax hikes are never particularly popular. And um, this is not an idea that's really sparked the uh, fire in the electorate to, oh, let's go out and 
vote for this tax hike policy. Of course not. No one really wants it. But uh, Japan is just facing its uh, its fiscal demons in a more overt way. And uh, fiscal demons, I mean, there are a lot of them here in Japan. Not only, of course, the graying population, the demographic winter, which I think everyone knows about, is a, is a big factor here in Japan. But, uh, but also the fact that they're having big political struggles here over bond issuance, basically something like the debt ceiling crisis in, in America. There was just a, a sort of routine bond issuance that became a big political struggle earlier this year and actually caused the central government here to actually have to cut back on some of its transfer payments to some municipal governments, which actually stopped certain government services from, from happening in October, November. That was finally resolved, but... Again, some some big wranglings over the economic future of Japan as things start to look more and more bleak in a country that is heavily dependent on exports but has a very strong yen at the moment. There are some other issues like that that are quite uh, weighing on everyone's minds here. And I guess the idea is, uh, well, we need to raise revenue. Why not raise taxes? That always works, right? So let's plunge the country even further into recession, which, by the way, it just entered again for the fifth time in 15 years. That's right. The Japanese economy, still the third largest economy in the world, at least notionally, has just entered its fifth recession in the last 15 years. It is a total basket case, economically speaking, and tax hikes are not going to solve the problem, but try telling that to the political class. So basically, it, it, tax hikes are almost certainly going to happen no matter who wins this election. But it's not going to be popular with the electorate. Uh, also, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I've talked about here on the broadcast a few times now, this new type of NAFTA of Asia, I suppose you could call it something like that, a free trade agreement of the Pacific nations, including Brunei, Chile, Canada, the US, Malaysia, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Vietnam, Australia, uh, Japan now f- flirting with the idea of signing on to the TPP. This is quite unpopular with the farmers here who stand to lose uh, the, the tariffs that protect their produce here in Japan. So there's uh, likely to be a flood of cheaper foreign rice and other products uh, flooding the market here if the if Japan signs on to the TPP. Also, labor unions and others quite uh, upset with the idea of signing on to this partnership agreement. But it looks like, again, it looks like the political uh, will is to move the uh, electorate in that way. And then the other uh, policy, which would be popular if it were ever to be enacted, is the zero nuke policy, which the the government kind of flirted with and kind of dangled before the Japanese public earlier this year. They kind of promised, oh yeah, we'll we'll have a zero nuke policy, and by 2030s, uh, it'll all be gone. All the nuclear reactors will be gone. And that was basically, there was an about face on that within 24 hours. It got watered down. No one's really seriously expecting that all of the reactors are going to be shut down anymore. So I think that's been abandoned as a political idea, and yet I would say the vast majority of the Japanese public are still strongly, staunchly anti-nuclear. So there's a huge disconnect between what people want and what these governments are able to deliver. Surprise, surprise, does that sound like everywhere else in the world? Yes, I think it does. But yet, strangely enough, of course, just as part of the protest vote, people are going to vote against the DPJ. That means they're probably going to vote in the LDP headed by Shinzo Abe, who um, is going to be, I think, a bit of a nightmare and is going to try to change the Japanese constitution to get rid of the pacifist uh, ideals in there, the clauses that forbid the use of the Japanese army uh, military outside of its borders, etc. 
So there's going to be a lot of uh, changes happening here in Japan, I imagine, in the next several months. So we'll keep our eye on that for you. Also, of course, while we're in East Asia, we should mention, of course, the, the Chinese leadership, which took place and which we were talking about on the program last month. And it took place as scheduled and as everyone knew was going to happen ahead of time. Xi Jinping is taking over the premiership of China. And it's going to be an interesting uh, ride, I think, for the next several years. And there's some analysis that's starting to come out. What does this actually mean for uh, China? And what does this mean for the people of the world who are watching this uh, this leadership transition? And for more on that, I will just point you to an, an interesting conversation that took place on Fareed Zakaria's GPS on CNN recently. And of course, I'm loath to uh, to give any credit or any uh, any more traffic to that CFR globalist stooge Fareed Zakaria. But as I've said a few times on this pro- program now, I think it's a good uh, place to go to listen to what the enemy is talking about because they have a lot of globalist insiders on that program every single week. And just on a recent edition, on the December second edition of the program, they had uh, some uh, people from the Harvard Kennedy School and the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, just basically uh, talking about the, the leadership transition, what it means. They're lamenting the fact that, of course, Xi Jinping and others won't be reformist enough. An interesting conversation, so I'll put the links in the show notes so you can go and check it out for yourselves. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back with more news and analysis from around the globe right after this break. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio, as tonight we're going around the world to take a look at some stories that are of some importance, I think, for the coming months, years, and uh, perhaps even decades ahead, as we look at some changes that are coming on the electoral map, the geopolitical map, and even the physical map itself. And I'm referring to the secession idea, which is spreading around the globe and taking people's minds by storm. And I think there are some hopeful things about this, but there are, of course, also things that we should be cautious about. But at any rate, we should be aware of what's happening. So let's just take our cue from a story that uh, broke on The Guardian uh, earlier today. Catalonia joins Scotland in push for 2014 independence vote. And this article says, quote, Europe faces an unprecedented attempt by two regions to form new states in 2014, after politicians in Catalonia reached an agreement to call a referendum in the same year that Scots will be asked whether they want independence. A basic agreement between nationalist Catalan President Artur Mas and the separatist Catalan Republic Left, ERC party, will result in the latter propping up Mas's new minority government. The price for support is the setting of a time limit on a self-determination referendum. Mas had promised to hold one by 2017, but ERC has forced him to commit to 2014, according to Spanish press reports citing those involved in negotiations. The agreement with ERC will allow Mas, who remains in power despite losing parliamentary seats in elections last month, to form a new government shortly, according to reports. Officials in Mas's office claim to confirm or deny the deal with ERC, but the move looks likely to increase confrontation with Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy's conservative People's Party government, which he said, which has said it would make sure that courts banned a unilateral referendum in advance. If Moss ignored a ban imposed by the Constitutional Court, he could face trial and be barred from public office. The decision to hold the Catalan referendum in the same year as the Scottish vote creates a double headache for the EU. 
Officials have so far maintained that newly independent countries must apply for EU membership, which normally takes many years and can be vetoed by a single member state. End quote. Well, some interesting things heating up in Europe as people start to at least flirt with this idea of secession. And of course, there is a long history of this, specifically in the areas mentioned here. Of course, the Scottish independence movement, the Catalonian independence movement, have been around for a very long time, and have been trying various、uh, methods to to bring this to the political table. But interestingly enough, both of those particular movements are seem to be coming to a head at the exact same point in 2014. So. At the very least, even if the European Union is able to string this eurozone crisis out along for another year or two,、uh, it still means they're going to have to run up against this wall of these independence votes. At the very least, in Scotland and Catalonia, which is a pretty major thing, because again, as this article notes, the EU has it in their in their、uh, documents that. Every new country is going to have to apply for EU membership individually. So Scotland would have to again vote on and decide on whether they would want to join the EU,、uh, as would Catalonia. So、uh, it, it is an interesting phenomenon, and it's interesting that there seems to be political will and motivation to make this happen. At, specifically at this point, and of course, there's a lot of people pointing to the underlying economics of what's happening in Europe as the primary reason why suddenly this idea is gaining traction. But whatever the reason, I think it must be healthy that people are looking towards decentralization and getting out of the cl- clutches of these larger government institutions. In order to try to find a little bit of freedom and liberty for their own、uh, peoples, I think that's healthy because, at the very least, it points people in the direction that I think we should be going as a society, which is away from centralization of authority of any sort. Why on earth should we be living in these structures where 51% of the population gets to decide who rules a country for the next、uh, however many years? It is a ridiculous system in a lot of ways, and it's one that I've talked about in some of my previous、uh, work on Corbett Report. Com. So I hope you'll check that out. But at any rate, it is certainly something gaining traction in Europe right now. And of course, there's also the Belgian、uh, question about whether or not、uh, Belgium will actually split into two separate countries, and all of these types of questions that are raging right now in Europe. But of course, it's not just Europe where secession fever is taking hold. We also, of course, have seen the recent petitions to the White House、uh, asking for people for a response on whether or not various states sh- should be allowed to secede from the Union. And、uh, in fact, we ha- we can follow up on this story from a recent post on the Mi- Miami Herald blog. Florida, other state secession petitions do White House response, and this notes that out of the、uh, well, all 50 states did have petitions that were filed、uh, on behalf of their citizens to、uh, to get the White House to respond on this issue of secession. Eight of them actually managed to reach the、uh, the threshold, which would require a response by the White House within 30 days. That's Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Alabama, and South Carolina. And they are all now waiting on word from the White House about what the White House will say about their right to secede, which I I appreciate this, and I'm glad that this is at least being raised as an issue. But I'm not sure, of course, making petitions to the White House is necessarily the best way to go about it. If people are truly serious about seceding, I think this must be seen as as more of a、uh, a theoretical and more of a symbolic thing at this point, and it's really just inserting it into the cultural conversation, which is healthy, but obviously 
if there is to be serious talk about states' rights and actual secession, it's not going to come by going politely cap in hand to the Washington paymasters and please, oh please, let us secede from you. So I have a lot more to say about that. I'm going to be writing about it in this week's newsletter, so you can stay tuned for that. And stay tuned for more right after this met the commercial break. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com slash support. If you're looking for a change, you might try another place. Because the candidates you're looking at are basically the same. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Let's continue talking about some of the real news that should be making headlines around the world, even if you're not getting it in a lot of the controlled corporate media. We've talked a little bit about what's happening in East Asia, and then we turned our eye to Europe and even the American idea of the secession movement. Let's turn over to North Africa, and let's take a look at what's happening in Egypt. And this is something that we've been following off and on over the last several weeks here uh, on the program as things have really started to degenerate and, again, come to a head in a certain way in Egypt, um, especially since November 22nd when the President Morsi basically... De- issued a decree basically calling himself a dictator and saying that uh, the, the there was no such thing as judicial oversight over his actions, which, well, threw into stark contrast all the glowing, hopeful rhetoric about the Egyptian revolution that took place last year, or supposedly took place last year, and we had all of the usual suspects of the establishment progressive left come out to, to say what a wonderful thing had taken place without any of the real deep analysis about what had actually been overthrown, how had it been overthrown, and what was the next step. It was all easy for people to pack themselves on the back in a kind of weird self-aggrandizing way and say, oh, it's this is the progress that we've helped initiate and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, if it devolves into another tyranny, it will have been for nothing. And at the very least, the people of Egypt are acutely aware of this now, which has greatly increased the unrest in Egypt in the past few weeks. So we've been covering this off and on, some of the protests that are happening there and even the counter-protests, uh, the, the fact that the Supreme uh, Constitutional Court has basically abdicated its responsibility to rule on the, uh, the, uh, the, the membership of the panel that was drafting the, the Constitution. And now here we are uh, just a couple of days out from the vote on the Constitution itself, the referendum on the new Constitution that was drafted up and was basically ramrodded through the Egyptian parliament there on November 29th, 30th in an overnight session. It was just uh, railroaded through, and now it's going to the polls, and the Egyptian people are going to be voting on, well, the soul of Egypt, I suppose, in a, in a maybe more or less literal sense in the next couple of days. So we can take our cue on this from the Associated Press, and we'll get this by way of the Montreal Gazette, which had this article up earlier today, Egypt's referendum on new constitution turns into fateful choice on nation's future. And this article says, quote, Two days before a constitutional referendum it considered boycotting, Egypt's secular op- opposition finally launched its No campaign Thursday, with newspaper and TV ads detailing the argument against the charter drafted by Islamist supporters of President Mohamed Morsi. The Morsi camp has a simpler message. 
a yes to the Constitution is a yes to Islam. The deadly violence and harsh divisions of recent weeks, combined with the inability of most Egyptians to even comprehend the densely written 63-page document, have turned the vote into a stark choice on whether the largest Arab nation takes a serious step toward theocratic rule. This constitution is supposed to protect the rights of the minorities, but it is written by the majority for the majority, said Haitham Shirdi, a young opposition supporter from Cairo. If it passes, it will be used to crush the minority until they vanish, he added, referring to Egypt's Christian community. Morsi's Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamists have been uh, plastering posters across much of the country urging Egyptians to vote yes to protecting Sharia, as in Sharia laws, as in Islamic law, which is actually going to be hardwired into the constitution of the country if the constitution is approved in its current form. So once again, it's not really hyperbole to say that the the future of the nation is really hanging in the balance here, as one would expect when a referendum on a new constitution is is be taking place. But as I think this article points out appropriately, a densely written, almost incomprehensible 63-page document is a far cry from the founding documents of certain other countries, including, of course, our good friends there in the United States of America. And you can still go and read through the Constitution of the United States in one comfortable short sitting. And although the language may be a slightly more refined than what we're used to in this internet gobbledygook speak age, it is still quite comprehensible and easy to follow. The powers of the government are clearly delineated And, of course, that doesn't stop the current powers that shouldn't be from trampling all over that document at every conceivable opportunity. But at any rate, the Constitution is still largely comprehensible. Now, of course, we can get into the deeper political argument about whether there should be a Constitution, and I would point people in the direction of Lysander Spooner for more on that, and we will cover that more on the Corbett Report in the future. But for the moment, just taking a look and in the political context that this is happening in, uh, the idea of a densely worded, hardly comprehensible 63-page document that is now going to uh, basically decide the fate of Egypt is, well, it's going to be uh, politically very interesting to watch how this develops in the next couple of days. And it is not hyperbole, again, to be talking about Sharia law and the possible consequences for the Egyptian Christian community and other minority communities in Egypt. Uh, This is very much something that's actually really being decided, not only through the Constitution, but is actually being implemented on the ground already. And again, we can turn to the AP for a report they had the other day about an Egyptian activist. It says, Egypt court gives Christian three years for blasphemy. Quote, a Cairo court on Wednesday convicted a Coptic Christian blogger who shared an anti-Islam film on social networking sites and sentenced him to three years in prison for blasphemy and contempt of religion. The case of Alber Saber is one of several seen by rights advocates as a campaign led by Egypt's ultra-conservative Islamists to curb free expression. Many of these targeted in the campaign, many of those targeted in the campaign are Christians who make up about 10% of Egypt's population of 85 million. Saber was arrested September 13th after neighbors complained he had shared on Facebook the amateur film made in the United States that sparked protests across the Muslim world. His arrest came during a wave of public outrage over the film produced by an Egyptian-American copt. 
End quote. Well, you can go on to continue reading about that video, which I'm sure we all know by now, The Innocence of Muslims, which I think is a giant psyop in and of itself. But at any rate, I think we can all agree that posting a link to that video on Facebook should probably not get you sentenced to three years imprisonment for blasphemy, which is a worrying sign of things to come in an Egypt that is increasingly showing signs of heading the Muslim Brotherhood way, which, uh, as we broke down on the program last week is something that has for a long time been used as a sword of imperialist aggression in North Africa and in the Muslim world generally, as it has been bolstered as an institution by its ties to various American and Western intelligence agencies so that it can keep the public divided against itself and keep any secular national nationalist government from coming to power that might actually have the chance of posing some sort of threat to the American and Western hegemony in the region. So there's a lot to go into there. Uh, again, we've covered some of this on the program before, and we'll keep our eye on what happens with the Constitution referendum. But I hope you'll be keeping your eyes on that this weekend as well. I think it'll be worth watching. Let's turn our attention over more to uh, to Persia, where, uh, again, there's some interesting things happening in the ongoing saga of the Iran-UN nuclear inspections. And for people who haven't been watching it closely, basically the IAEA has been trying to create a bit of a brouhaha with Iran over access to certain sites, including the Parchin military site, which they are claiming is being used as part of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, which they are claiming is actually a thing. Um, And there has been some progress on negotiations between Iran and the IAEA over the inspections. So this comes from Rothschild Reuters uh, earlier today, Iran UN nuclear agency end talks, no word on site visit. And this says, quote, Iran said progress was made in Thursday's talks in Tehran with senior UN nuclear inspectors, but gave no details other than they would meet again in mid-January. There was no immediate comment from the UN International Atomic Energy Agency about the one-day meeting over Iran's disputed nuclear program, and no sign its inspectors would gain access to the Parchin military complex as requested. The agency believes Iran has conducted explosives tests with possible nuclear applications at Parchin, a sprawling facility southeast of Tehran, and has repeatedly asked for access, end quote. So that's the latest development. Again, we don't really know the details of what's happened there, but it seems at any rate that Iran is happy with the progress that's been made in these talks, and the IAEA is going to claim some sort of victory here. So perhaps this is some kind of face-saving deal for both sides, that they can continue with this process of the IAEA inspecting these sites and all of this, which I don't even want to come out and say is a bad thing in and of itself. I think that I, I don't put any faith whatsoever in the United Nations as some sort of impartial body to really be observing and looking over the, the nuclear activities of various countries, but I don't think it's a bad thing in and of itself for there to be transparency over nuclear programs. In fact, we should be scrapping the nuclear programs in all countries because they really are nothing more than fronts for nuclear weapons development uh, time and time again. And we've seen that in all the countries that have nuclear power. It's uh, always used as that type of false front. So I don't think that the fears are misfounded per se, but of course this is being used as a geopolitical tool to persecute Iran. And I think we can see that very clearly from the machinations that have been taken taking place behind the scenes to demonize Iran over their alleged nuclear weapons program 
of which there has been no proof whatsoever that's been provided so far, whereas, of course, we have the Israeli secret nuclear weapons program, the only, uh, the only nuclear power in the Middle East, the only power that has... Uh, in fact, it's the sixth largest nuclear power on the planet, but it still doesn't admit that it has nuclear weapons. They are still not open to IAEA access. They have never been inspected by anyone. So this is the fundamental hypocrisy that underlies this entire process. And I know I've pointed it out before, but I think it bears repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating because you are never ever going to read that in any Rothschild Reuters report report ever, because they are repeaters, not reporters. So let's turn to a very, very, very interesting article from a site that I find increasingly useful. I've uh, only really started going to this site recently, but I really do find it useful, so you should go go and check it out. It's intelnews.org, and they have some interesting articles up there from time to time, including this one that just came out earlier today, Who Leaked Iranian Nuclear Document? that turned out to be a hoax. Now, this is a fascinating story, so I'll just read through this article. It says, quote, On November 27th, the Associated Press published an alleged Iranian document, which it said proved Iran was working on a nuclear bomb. The news agency said the disclosure was the latest in a series of similar leaks to the media by officials from a country critical of Iran's atomic program. However, the authenticity of the document, which contained a diagram calculating the explosive force of a nuclear weapon, is now heavily disputed. An analysis of the leaked document in the latest issue of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists concluded that it was either massively erroneous or a hoax designed by amateurs. The Bulletin, a specialist publication founded by physicists involved in the Manhattan Project, said the document was, quote, unlikely to have been made by research scientists working at a national level. The obvious question is, who leaked the disputed document and why? An article in the British newspaper The Guardian cites unnamed Western officials who claim that the the diagram, along with several previous disclosures of a similar nature, was leaked by Israel in an attempt to raise international pressure on Tehran. If this is so, the leak appears to have seriously backfired and may have compromised the credibility of an ongoing investigation into the Iranian nuclear program by the International Atomic Energy Agency. This is because the leaked document was part of an intelligence file on Iran's nuclear program compiled by the IAEA, which formed the factual basis for a new set of penalties and sanctions imposed on Iran by the US and the EU in November of 2011. The question that some United Nations officials are now asking is, if the leaked document is indeed a hoax, how could the IAEA guarantee the authenticity of the remaining documents in this file on Iran? And what if Israel, which has a vested interest in convincing the world that Iran's nuclear policy poses a clear and present danger to its neighbors, is actively engaged in supplying the IAEA with similar forgeries? One unidentified European diplomat who spoke to The Guardian assured the paper that the leaked document is just one small snapshot of what the IAEA is working on, and part of a much broader collection of data from multiple sources. The diplomat added that the IAEA had been aware of the huge error in that particular document before it was leaked to the media. The London-based paper also quotes David Albright, a nuclear expert at the Institute for Science and International Security in Washington, who said that whoever leaked the document has undermined the IAEA's credibility and made it harder for it to do its work, end quote. 
oh, oh, poor IAEA. Oh, some, some horrible people are leaking these, these documents and, oh, undermining the IAEA and their, their beautiful mission to undermine Iran. Um, well, we can make of David Albright's statements what we will, and I think I would suggest you take them with a bit of a grain of salt and keep in mind who David Albright is and his connections, but at any rate, uh, we can definitely take a look at these documents, which, again, formed part of the case against Iran that was used as the justification for the sanctions which have been imposed and which are crippling the Iranian economy and causing real pain to real people who really live in Iran. So just as the Iraqi sanctions, again, which caused half a million deaths of children over the 10 years that it was running, was seen as just just a necessary and, and even something that, that, that was, on the whole, a good thing by people like Madeleine Albright. Well, now we have uh, David Albright coming on uh, saying, oh, well, these, you know, these sanctions are necessary because of the Iranian nuclear program. Well, surprise, surprise, can we see history repeating? And for anyone who needs um, any more fleshing out of why this issue is so important, you might want to take a look at the uranium uh, yellow cake hoax, which was floated about Saddam Hussein trying to acquire uh, yellow cake for the production of nuclear weapons from from, uh, Niger back in the day. And of course, that turned out to be a ridiculous hoax based on forged documents that a, a grade schooler with access to the internet could have debunked in a few minutes. Um, just a ridiculous story. So, again, if people who don't know about the history of that can check into it. But, again, is it really surprising that leaked, forged documents are being used to try to convict Iran in the court of public opinion? And uh, where do they source back from? Could it be Israel? Oh, well, maybe. It's just some some Western government that's critical of Iran. We won't say which one. Well, uh, at, at the top, they're all the same anyway, so it doesn't really matter, I suppose. But yes, I think we can safely say that Israel is most likely behind this. And again, it's just part of this entire game, this house of cards that's being built to try to demonize certain people in the public's mind. And unfortunately, we found time and time again, it works. And a lot of the American public is just tickety-boo, fine and dandy with uh, bombing Iran back to a park glass parking lot or whatever the uh, the phrase is these days and based on things that are absolutely not true so a very important article i hope people will read it and actually help to spread that that link around i think it's an important article for people to be checking out as well as intelnews.org generally again i haven't been checking this site for very long but they have some interesting articles up there so i hope people will check that out of course you can find the link from the show notes of today's episode at quarterreport.com And on that note, we have one final break, and we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Alright friends, we are here in the final few minutes of tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio, and I just wanted to turn our attention to Syria just for a moment, as I'm sure everyone is aware by now that things are heating up in Syria in a large number of ways, and some of the latest news that's making the headlines right now is that, gasp, Russia has admitted that it's a possibility that Assad might actually fall in this uh, in foreign-supported jihad against him. And somehow this is news, like, oh, now suddenly it's, it's I guess, a green light to, to go into Syria because Russia is saying it's a possibility that Assad will fall. I, again, it's all about perceptions. But, uh, but I think 
there's another part of what's going on in Syria right now that's really interesting, and I had the chance to discuss this a little bit recently on Press TV, which, to their credit, has started having me on as a commentator. So uh, the other day I was on, and it's on a video called Syria Opposition Made Up of West Agents that's up on Press TV's uh, YouTube channel. I'll link to that in the show notes for tonight's episode. But we can find out more about uh, this story. It's about the Syrian National Coalition, which is the latest front puppet organization that's been put up as the the voice of the Syrian people by the international community. And uh, and this is basically to replace the Syrian National Council, which no one took seriously in the first place, and which they had to uh, basically dump at one point. So they, they're starting with this new organization. Again, it's a total front, but uh, it has some interesting connections. And let's turn to Land Destroyer Report. Again, the work of Tony Cardellucci doing some great work exposing this organization. And I couldn't put it any better than he does, so I'll just quote from this article called U.S.-backed Syrian Opposition Demands Support for Al-Qaeda. Quote, as part of the U.S.'s charade in declaring support and recognition of the so-called Syrian opposition, it added one of the more extreme groups that make up the militant front operating inside Syria to a list of sanctioned terrorist organizations. The idea was to have a scapegoat to pin atrocities on while the West armed, funded, and provided military support for the rest of the extremist groups ravaging Syria. The ploy quickly fell apart, however, when the U.S.'s own hand-picked opposition leader, Moaz Al-Khatib, spoke out in protest. Reuters quoted Al-Khatib as saying, The decision to consider a party that is fighting the regime as a terrorist party needs to be reviewed. We might disagree with some parties and their ideas and their political and ideological vision, but we affirm that all the guns of the rebels are aimed at overthrowing the tyrannical criminal regime. Al-Khatib himself openly declares his intentions of establishing an Islamic state upon the ashes of the currently secular Syria, and has ties with the extremist Muslim Brotherhood. He was also a representative of Western big oil interests, in particular Royal Dutch Shell. Al-Khatib had worked with the Al-Furat Petroleum Company for six years, according to the BBC, which is partnered with Shell Oil. Al-Khatib is also said to have lobbied for Shell in Syria between 2003 and 2004, and has likewise taught classes in both Europe and the United States. This, according to his biography, featured on his own website. End quote. Of course, what are the implications of all this? Well, there are many. First of all, surprise, surprise, another big oil lobbyist taking uh, taking position to become a, an important political figure in an overthrown puppet state. Can anyone say Karzai in Afghanistan, part two? But there's also, of course, the implications that uh, uh, the support of these rebels is support of foreign terrorist organizations, even listed foreign terrorist organizations, which, of course, by the U.S.'s own rules, specifically USC Section 2339B, is support, giving material support or resources to a foreign terrorist organization, which carries a title of, uh, which carries imprisonment for not under 15 years. So it's a serious offense, but don't expect it to be prosecuted anytime soon. All right, we're completely out of time for tonight. I just want to let people know that, I, again, I will be writing more on the secessionist question in this week's International Forecaster editorial, which will be published in my subscriber newsletter, which you can get at CorbettReport.com slash support. So 23 hours from now, we'll be back with an all-new episode of Corbett Report Radio. Thank you all for listening tonight, and take care. <laughs>